This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Air passenger rights. If you are flying, what rights do you have? And this, of course, goes back to a story you've been hearing all morning on Global News about a passenger who flies with Swoop to Vegas, $300, and then the flight home gets canceled. And you say, okay, well, when is the next flight out? And you hear the story, uh, next one we can get you on is in seven days. I'm sorry, did you say seven hours? No, uh, the next one we can get you on is seven days from now. But you're in Vegas. Well, this didn't really work out for the two people who were involved, and they ended up paying, as you will hear in more reports from Sawyer Bogdan, five times as much to get home. And so this is the story that you've been hearing, but it leads us to further questions. And one of those questions is, what rights do you have? I mean, flights get canceled. It happens. We see people bumped. Flying standby is a thing. If there aren't enough people to fill out a plane, what's the rule of thumb? It's that the flight doesn't go? I mean, some people get lucky and post selfies of themselves in an empty plane. That happened to one guy one time, but I don't think that's very common. So we have an opportunity right now to get a little bit more information about what your rights are as a passenger. And it will hopefully translate into happier travel for all of us. Because you know what? Flying on a plane is fun unless you're afraid of flying. And you shouldn't be afraid of flying. It is fantastic. It's fun. Joining us right now is Gabor Lucas. And Gabor Lucas has all kinds of experience and basically studies this on a daily basis. You can go to airpassengerrights.ca and find out more. And Gabor, we want to thank you for taking some time out for us today. Good afternoon. Let's kind of begin with reasonable expectation when traveling. If you're traveling by car, there is a re- there's a reasonable expectation that no one will pull out in front of you and cut you off at some point. But you know what? It happens. If you're traveling by train, a cow could be on the tracks and the train could have to stop until the cow is moved. If you're traveling by air, a flight could be canceled. So where does reasonable expectation come in when we're talking about air travel? I don't think reasonable expectation is really the right framework or, or in the context of thinking about it. We need to think in terms of the law. First and foremost, airlines have to obey the law. And that's what clearly didn't happen here. An airline cannot tell passengers, we are going to transport you only in one week from now, unless uh, there is something like a volcanic eruption and there are no flights for an entire week. Just because they make a commercial choice to leave the passengers there doesn't mean that it is right. Generally, the legal test is whether the airline has taken all reasonable measures to prevent delay to the passenger. So if the flight is canceled, say, for weather, we all understand that it's Canada, weather happens. But once the weather clears up, the airline has an obligation to transport the passenger right away. They cannot wait six or seven days until they transport them. And if it means they have to rebook passengers in other airlines because for whatever reason, their own planes are not flying, that's the airline's problem. And I think you've raised something that already not many people knew, that 
there are laws binding this? I didn't think it stretched that far. And unfortunately, those laws are not being enforced by the government and haven't been in the past. But those laws with respect to liability for delay in air transportation, they have been in place since 2003. They are part of the Carriage by Air Act, federal legislation. Okay. And so if you are a traveler and let's say a flight gets canceled and you are inconvenienced, and in this case, I mean, I don't even know if we can use the word inconvenience for the two Londoners who were traveling, and that happens to be Christina Palmer, and she was in a a very difficult situation in which she wanted to go away on a stress-free holiday. She had been diagnosed with cancer, and next thing you know, they're told that they can't fly home for another week. So what do you do as a passenger if all of a sudden you're in a situation like this, or even maybe a a little less inconvenient than this, but still a situation similar to this? As a passenger, uh, you need to know that the airline is liable for your expenses, your damages incurred in such a situation, whether it is hotel, meals, or or alternative transportation, lost wages, all those are something that the airline will have to pay for. You may need to fight it in small claims courts, but ultimately they will have to pay up. Assuming that it is not something like a volcanic eruption or genuine weather. Now, in this case, it's quite clear that there was no seven-day snowstorm that would prevent the airline from transporting these passengers back for seven days. It was really a commercial decision to just keep people stranded, and that's simply wrong. So a passenger did the right thing because Spook was not living up to its obligations under the contract. They actually um, hired or bought a different uh, ticket on a different airline, and um, Swoop will be on the hook for all these expenses, except for perhaps one night's hotel, possibly, which might possibly be justified by the weather. That's something that Swoop will have to prove. And, Dr. Lukacs, that goes back to the laws that exist. That's right. This is, this is the part of Article 19 of the Montreal Convention, which is Schedule 6 of the Carriage by Air Act. It's right there in the law books. I just wish the government was doing something to enforce it. Unfortunately, what we do see is some uh, smoke and mirrors and some new rules that actually will make things worse for travelers because uh, in the case of small carriers, which Swoop may try to argue that it's a small carrier, really gives them a lot of leeway to not reprotect passengers in such situations and also tries to institutionalize the universal excuse that, oh, this delay was due to maintenance issues and therefore we owe you nothing. So um, the, the, I'm very troubled by what I'm seeing in the new rules because uh, they are really airline-friendly and provide airlines with official uh, basis for excuses they have been trying to make unsuccessfully for many years. Now they will try to use these new rules as a basis for that. Now the existing legislation, the Montreal Convention, is still the law, so passengers will have to be very cautious with what, on what basis they are seeking compensation. It may well happen that, that and would happen probably in this case that the passenger is owed nothing under the new rules, but under the Montreal Convention, the Carriage Barrier Act, which still remains the law, they may be owed compensation. We are talking with Dr. Gabor Lukacs, and we are talking about the situation that you've been hearing about a lot on 980 CFPL today, and that is Christina Palmer and her husband going off to Vegas on Swoop, and they find out that their flight home is canceled, that the next flight home is not for another seven days, and as Dr. Lukacs points out, this is not something that you just stand by and say, okay, yeah, I guess I guess that's the way it is, that there is legislation that exists. We have had 
had a lot of small carriers come into the marketplace. Have the laws not been updated to incorporate what they are doing? Is that part of the problem? Part of the problem is that the new rules that come into force in uh, December actually give small carriers even more leeway, more excuses, more loopholes. So it's not that they haven't been updated, rather they have been made in a way that is very airline-friendly, very consumer-hostile, and anti-consumer, actually. So when the government is calling this a passenger protection legislation, it's really a bad joke, and the problem is the joke is on us, passengers. Mm-hmm. So any recommendations, like you say, if this happens, you might have to go all the way to small claims court in this. Is there anything that can be done at the time or, or anything that we should expect to have happen at the terminal if we're told, nope, that's canceled and we just don't fly until next Thursday? I would say document the incident, record a conversation. Uh, if it is permissible in that particular jurisdiction in Canada, you definitely can record your conversation with another person without their permission. You just need your own consent to recording. Um, document, get witnesses, get the name of the person, because all these things ultimately come down to evidence in court, whether you as a passenger can establish that you were told they would not transport you for seven days. Keeping people that long in a country, uh, a foreign country, away from their homes, away from the families, away from their jobs, is not something I would anticipate a judge to uphold unless there is a war or there's a complete closure of the airspace. And none of that happened here. Right. Or a volcano, like you say. As a final question, how common are things like this? Unfortunately, Swoop seems to be in the news in relation to such and similar issues recently. And I'm not seeing a crackdown on it. Part of the problem is that the federal regulator, the Canadian Transportation Agency, is not doing its job. They could issue hefty fines, they could take steps to deal with such issues, but they are turning a blind eye to it. So I really appreciate you as a journalist to expose this issue and, and bring it to the forefront, because what I've seen is that the laws don't work. The court of public opinion and the media pressure does seem to be making a difference. Well, thank you for raising your voice and and providing that information to us, because I think a lot of us thought before now that the word law was not even a part of this, but you've definitely introduced that. Dr. Lucas, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. That is Dr. Gabor Lucas, who is with airpassengerrights.ca, if you would like to check out the website. And you can also check out 980cfpl.ca, and you can find the entire story and an interview as well detailing what Christina Palmer and her husband went through when they found themselves stranded in Vegas. Christina had just gone to Vegas to kind of get away after a cancer diagnosis and then was told she wouldn't be able to get back and she had cancer treatments, she had surgery, she had all kinds of things coming up and then all of a sudden they were told, nope, not another flight for a week. All right, we have with us two very special guests. Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex, and Wendy Thompson, who is an Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex board member and the principal of Right Brain Trainers. And we talked with Carol and Wendy a few weeks ago, and now they are back because we talked to them about the fact that they would be raising money for the programs and services needed to help Alzheimer's patients in this area, and they would be doing it by 
climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, the two of you are back. Both of you are smiling. Uh, Carol, that has to be a good sign. It is a good sign, Mike. Thanks for having us back. <laughs> well, we're going to get to hear about Wendy and Carol making the climb with their spouses up Mount Kilimanjaro. But first, let's kind of rewind time and take us back to why it was you decided to climb a mountain. Because both of you now can put that down on the resume, cross mm-hmm. it off the bucket list, whatever you want to do with it. But, Wendy, where did it kind of come from? Well, Carol and I, you know, have done a lot of various things throughout the years and, you know, we thought we need a challenge. We need to shake it up and do something different. And so we thought, why don't we take a hike and, you know, initially it was, you know, we didn't really know what we were going to do or where we were going to go. And then Kilimanjaro came up. It's always been on my bucket list. It's been on Carol's bucket list. And I'd been in the Yukon the summer before and did some hiking and thought, you know what, I'm not as agile and as, you know, um, I guess as swift as I used to be physically. I, both of you guys look like you're in fantastic shape. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> and so we thought, you know what, this is the time to do it. So we, you know, started talking about it. And initially our plan wasn't to link it to the Alzheimer's. But then once we started to train and we realized, you know what, this is a lot bigger than us. I think we need to link it to something. And that's when Carol came up with the idea about, you know, putting it back and bringing in the Alzheimer's Society. Well, we are talking right now with Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex, and Wendy Thompson, Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex board member and also principal of Right Brain Teams. And Carol, you decided that for every bit of elevation, you were hoping to raise some money. And what would the money go toward? Yes, the money goes toward programs and services delivered by the Alzheimer's Society, London and Middlesex. So, so all money raised is going directly to that cause. Okay. Fantastic. So then, you know, it's one thing to sit back and say, we should do this. And yeah, yeah, that'd be a good idea. And how many things do we actually get to that point where you think, yeah, and then the day comes where you actually have to put a foot forward and get this done. And well, maybe we could do something else. You know, there's a lot of other ways to raise money and there's a lot of other ways to to help out. Uh, You guys didn't do that. You you went through with Mm -hmm. this. So I guess let's rewind to getting on the plane. What was that moment like, Carol? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I think that's when it really started to hit home, particularly when our plane landed in Kilimanjaro. It's like, okay, this is going to happen now. And how long was the flight to get there? It was long. It was it was <laughs> almost between, you know, delays and, and waits in airports. It was about a full 24 hours. Hmm. So, so the actual flight, I think, was around 18 hours. But uh, – it was long. Okay. Um, so we had lots of time to think about what we were doing. <laughs> but, you know, it really hit home when we uh, met up with some groups that had just come down from the summit at the hotel just before we were leaving the next day. And they were indicating this is absolutely the hardest thing we've ever done. And we're going, wow. And, and we had more than one group say that. So I, I know I had a whole new respect for what we were about to uh, embark upon. Wow. Of all the things they could say, they could have said things like, you guys are going to have a great time. This is amazing. You should see the view. It's spectacular. <laughs> Instead, they choose the words, this is the hardest thing we've ever done. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, your spouses at this point, did they say, you know, now that I've heard this, you guys are great. We're going to be here as a support team. We'll yell from the bottom. You're doing great. It's looking fantastic climbing. They were okay with this, Wendy? 
They actually were okay. I think they were a little taken aback by these comments because, of course, we thought, well, what other things have you done then, right? So, you know, the the type A personalities that the four of us are said, oh, okay, so what else have you done? Maybe they've only ever hiked, you know, a little mountain or, or whatever. So they started going through and regaling us with stories of various things because similar to our adventure is they also had a fundraiser that they were raising money for. So that was encouraging. And, um, you know, the one gentleman had, you know, was a triathlete. He's done, yeah, he was, you know, close <laughs> to being an Ironman for the UK standards. So we're like, wow, and this is the hardest thing you've done. So I think it took us all back um, and, and it was like, wow, this is real. And we knew it was going to be tough. But when you start hearing things like, you know, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, as well as you look at the condition, like they're whipped, um, their faces are sunburned and windburned. And, you know, there's lots of stories that they shared with us. And we're like, we're just about to start. <laughs> and how close really were you at that point, Carol, to starting? Was it like the next morning you'd get up and go? Absolutely. So <laughs> so it was – I think we met this one group at breakfast. Oh, good. And we were, yeah, getting ready to hop on the bus to take us to the mountain after breakfast. So, yeah. And that's where you leave from. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes if someone sets the bar really, really high, maybe it doesn't seem as hard once you get there. So take us through. You're on the bus. You travel to where? The base of the mountain you go to, Wendy? Yeah, we went to the base of the mountain and uh, we ran into a little bit of a hiccup right at the beginning, which, you know, happens. And what had happened was there had been quite a bit of rain. So the side roads that we were going to travel to to get to the base of the mountain were just just full of mud and big divots and things that you would never see here. Like you would just would never travel on a road um, in that condition. So um, we got stuck the first time. The crew of 18 got out, pushed the bus out. And then the second time, we it felt like all four of us thought we were going over. It was like, oh my gosh, the bus is going to tip. You're still on the bus at this mm-hmm. point. You are bus. not using your own legs. No. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And, and needless to say, they couldn't get the – we said we're off the bus. So we um, got off the bus and then it, what that – what happened with that is it ended up adding another two or three kilometers to the first trek of the day, which took us to the base um, in um, – and it was dark. So that was a little unnerving because we were supposed to arrive two or three hours earlier and because of the delays, it didn't happen. So we started off and it was a little challenging to say the least. The first night in the base camp, we were in a tent and it was dark when we arrived. So it was like, what have we gotten ourselves into? We are lucky enough to have with us in studio Wendy Thompson. Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex board member Carol Walters, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. And we talked with Wendy and Carol a few weeks ago. And at that point, they were here in London and they were going to go to Mount Kilimanjaro and climb it. And they were going to do it for very good reasons. They were going to do it to help out in the treatment of Alzheimer's and the programs that are are used by Alzheimer's patients in this area. But they were going to climb a mountain in order to raise money for those programs and services. And they did. They got on the plane. They got to their hotel. They were told by people who had just finished this climb that it was the hardest thing they had ever done. As we said before news, uh, one of those people who was saying that did Ironmans uh, on a regular basis in the U.K., 
I think the water's even colder there. And so this this looked like a, a task and a half. And then they got on the bus, and it had been rainy, and the bus was a little tippy. So, Carol, you get out of the bus. Mm-hmm. You might have been happy to get out of the bus at that point. Absolutely. Uh, what do you see when you get out of the bus? Actually, it was quite beautiful, the area. So it was a kind of farmland that was around us. And so there were a lot of, um, a lot of people out working the fields, which is a very different way of working the fields that we, than we do here in North America. So, so again, there was a lot of mud. They, we, we decided we needed to hike at this point to, to the base of the Lamosho route, which was the route we were taking up the mountain. So, so we strapped on our backpacks. Our, our, we had a team of 18 that were taking us up with porters and guides and, and our cook and everyone else. So everyone grabbed the stuff off the top of the bus and we, we start to make our way, um, to the base. Uh, and, and as, as Wendy said earlier, it, we were quite a bit behind schedule at this point. We, we had a late start out of the, the hotel and, and due to the bus breaking down, and now now we needed to hike. So so we got to the route to the the gate. We took a picture that we were here, and then we jumped right on um, on the the trail going up. So it was through rainforest, which was beautiful. Um, but we knew that uh, we would probably have to do part of it in the dark. So mm. so again, a little bit intimidating because we had never done anything like this before. The the ground was a very rocky and very muddy. So just because of all the rain, so. It was quite slippery. So. And are you hearing rainforest sounds we of are. Uh, a lot of animals that might live nearby? I don't know what I mm-hmm. know that sometimes big animals live in the rainforest. I'm sure a lot of nice animals live in the rainforest too. But is that is that unnerving for the first little while to hear that? I think it was just that we just didn't know what to expect. But um, we didn't see a lot of big animals. We did see monkeys. Okay. So blue monkeys and um, black-faced monkeys. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, But then uh, – I, you know, I was already starting to have my my breathing affected by the altitude. Even at the, we were probably about five thousand feet above uh, sea level at this point, and so that was starting to. I don't know if it was just nerves because of everything that had happened or what, but it was a little bit unnerving to begin with. And then when we had to take out our headlamps and we still had an hour to get to camp, um, it was it was uh, okay. Now we have to do this in the dark. So. <laughs> So I, I think it was a bit challenging for all of us, a challenging way to start. Yeah. And Wendy, at this point, what are you wearing and what are you carrying? So that's interesting. One thing that we discovered very quickly is the um, temperature changed very quickly throughout the course of the day. So at that time, I was wearing um, um, the pants that you zip off to for shorts, so um, T-shirts and shorts. And then by the time we arrived at camp, we had um, put on our rain jackets, and then from there we'd put on another layer. So it was interesting, and that happened throughout the course of the uh, journey. Was we would go through all different terrain and all different climates. So that was really different for us as well. So you make camp, and then you crash there. You sleep there, mm-hmm. and in a sleeping bag, comfortable in any way. <laughs> Well, we we could have had a little bit more padding underneath that sleeping bag. <laughs> Would have been nice. Uh, so it, it, you could certainly feel the ground you were sleeping on. Uh, so it was uh, certainly Charlie and I had done a lot of camping in the past, so we were used to sleeping in a tent. But this was a very new experience for Ian and Wendy. So. <laughs> Thank goodness for Carol to give me all the tips and the do's and don'ts of camping. So you sleep for a nice full eight hours, or as much as you can get, or how long do they let you go down for? 
Yeah, the the breakfast we we always had a wake up call at six thirty, and uh, they would give us a cup of coffee in our tent, which was nice. Breakfast at seven and hiking by eight. Okay. So um, the problem though was sleeping. We were on medication to help us with altitude, which also makes you have to go to the bathroom a lot. Oh. So so you rarely slept through the night without having to get up, and when you had to get up, you never knew what you were stepping out into because yeah. it could be hailing, it could be raining, it could be a sky full of stars, which was beautiful. So, so you just, but you knew you had to get out. So, and they did um, carry a porta potty up the mountain for did us, they which really? was lovely. Yes. So, what? One of your guides, basically, not a full size. Pretty um, close. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty. Yep. Like strapped to somebody's back, climbing <laughs> mm-hmm. up. Yep. With a tent that went around it. So, how nice is this guy? I know. Wow. He was our hero. Yeah, he was. <laughs> They tipped him well. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. They always say that uh, a lot of jobs haven't been invented yet. That's one I don't think anybody knew was invented yet. I, mm-hmm. You know, Mom, Dad, you know, I've decided what I want to do. Uh, I don't know how that would come over, but that's that's an interesting job to have. Okay, so fortunately, that guy was there. Uh, then the next day, how high do you wind up getting, Wendy? So the second day um, for I think the four of us was one of the more challenging days because what we I, – I don't actually – a lot of this is foggy as it relates <laughs> to, you know, the distance that we climbed in the time. But what I do remember is it, there was, it was um, a very strong um, – Cliff is probably the best way to describe it with lots of rock, lots of um, challenges as it relates again to all terrain. So we would have climbed that day. I think it was eight hours is Mm -hmm. we're out for the second day. And is it a lot of hiking or is there a lot of actually, no, I got to hop up and – Yeah, it truly um, varies. Like I mean you go anywhere from – um, we started in the rainforest and then we went to the moorlands and then we went up and into, you know, climbing rocks. And so, yeah, it, it, it there is such a range of terrain that, uh, which we were very surprised with. And th- so the second day we were faced with, you know, all different kind of weather and all different terrain. So it, the second day was tough because there was a lot of rocks. And so we're climbing, you know, on a lot of rocks and then pulling ourselves up. And yeah, it was, um, it was a tough day. No doubt. Okay, this this continues to be a very wild story. We are talking with Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex, and Wendy Thompson, an Alzheimer's Society board member and the principal of Right Brain Trainers, and we are talking about them climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and we had reached the part of the story where the two of you had come to the end of day two. Carol, where was your exhaustion level at that point? Yeah, it was it was starting to get high. I think I was starting to be very thankful for the training that we had done. So so I felt strong. My legs felt strong. My back felt strong to be able to carry my uh, day pack. Um, so then I could focus on the part that didn't feel so good, which was my breathing. So mm-hmm. altitude really does challenge your breathing. Um, and and the the hike that we did or the climb that we did, certainly it was, it was tough. A lot of the terrain was tough. Um, but you do it at a very slow pace because if you lose your breath and you start gulping for air, it's very difficult to get it back. Really? It, it doesn't automatically recover like you would expect it to here. So it does start to play on your 
your mind a bit. So so it really um, you really have to focus on that that aspect. So was glad that I felt the strength of of the training that we did, so that that could that could be something I focused on. So that's day two. How many more days were there to go, Wendy? So there, um, before we got to the summit, there were six days to go. Re- okay, six days. So six days, yeah. Anything different from day three all the way to right before you get to the summit, or was it a lot of similar climbing and tough going? There was some really tough going. I would say by far the toughest day was the um, day where we, they, it's called the, the Baraka Wall. And what that means is it is there is literally a rock face that you are – um, skimming, you know, sk- to get through and you're hugging the rock with your hands because if you go back, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. So very – It's very, that dangerous? It's, it's that dangerous, yeah. yeah. And that's just one – you know, I want to be clear that wasn't the, you know, um, bulk of the trip. But there were a couple occasions where there's no question it was extremely dangerous. And so, you know, the guides were helpful. And you just had to really, really focus. Like you had to be in the moment. And it wasn't like, you know what, I'm going to think about, you know, what's going on tomorrow. You really, especially with this one particular piece with the the rock that we had to, they call it the kissing wall, because you're literally like pretty much kissing it to get through to the other side. And how wide is that? Well, I don't know the width, but it's 900 feet tall. Okay. Um, so you're climbing up 900 feet. It is quite a broad uh, wall, but it's 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 not only. And I have a bit of a fear for heights, so this was a, this was an area that was really uh, challenging uh, for me. But there are many people climbing at the same time. So if if one person slips yeah. or a rock gets knocked, you you don't know what's coming down beside you. So so I'd say they call it. That say that it's not a technical climb, but I'd say that particular component felt somewhat technical to me. <laughs> How's the guy with the porta potty doing at this point? <laughs> that's that's what's so crazy. These porters that carried all of our camp up the mountain with us, they're carrying some of them. They're balancing fifty pounds on top of their head while almost leaping up this wall. And I know at one point I'm watching them. I think, wow. And, and our lead guide looks at me. He goes, don't watch them. They're professionals. You need to focus on yourself. So and I go, okay. I got my mind. It's almost ball. like entertainment at that point. You, this is amazing. Shocking. It was shocking. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you've you've nearly reached the summit. The exhaustion level now, Wendy, where where is it? You pushing hard? You're pushing hard, and I think the adrenaline kicks in, right? You, it's like we're here, we're so close. Um, to Carol's point, I think the training certainly helped. But you can't do much for the altitude. You know, it is what it is. Um, we all responded differently to it at different times throughout the climb. For me, it was at night when I had to get up and go to the washroom. It was like I just wanted to get out of the tent quick and get back quick. And the guide said numerous times, you need to go slow when you're getting up. So, um, you know, but I certainly didn't uh, listen to that one and, you know, shame on me. And so we then wake up at 11 o'clock. So we sleep a couple hours. We wake up at 11 o'clock p.m. and start the climb on the sixth day at 12 o'clock midnight. So um, it's cold. It is extremely windy. Um, the guides were very, very um, good as it relates to the gear that we had to have. And it was funny initially when we were packing and, you know, they're sharing with us what we needed. It was like, oh, you know, that seems a little excessive. 
thank goodness we listened because they are the professionals. They know what they're doing. And so we started the climb at 12 o'clock at night. It was it was beautiful. Um, we were exhausted. But I think, like I said, for me, the adrenaline just really kicked in at that time until we got um, probably four and a half hours, till about 4.30 a.m. And then it was like, wow, like this is tough. Um, the winds were 80 kilometers an hour. Um, which is just, you know, there were times when we, when we would be rounding a corner where you would literally hang on to a rock beside you because you felt like you could literally be blown over. Mm-hmm. It was it was so windy. Then you make it to the top. Mm-hmm. You make it there. You get through the wind. You get through whatever else Mother Nature is throwing at you. Carol, what did that feel like? It was pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, we were all very exhausted, but but we made it. So lots of high fives, lots of hugs. We took some pictures, and and you can't stay at that altitude for very long. Really, five minutes, and you need to start going down. Um, and that that's when the next challenge hit was actually going down. We learned, and we had heard from people, oh, going down is harder than going up, and we kind of just ignored that. How? Really, you're going down. <laughs> they were right. Really? It was, it was ridiculous. It mm-hmm. was so difficult. I actually um, got to a point about two-thirds of the way down to the, the camp we left from um, was where we went. And then we had to go further, another four hours down. And my legs started buckling under me in some very thick gravel. Like I wish I had snowshoes because every step you took, you would sink into it. And I was just so exhausted at that point. So um, thank God for our, our porters and our guides. They, they took my backpack. They took my arm and, and helped, helped lead me down. To the point at one point, I actually took a piggyback ride from one of the porters <laughs> through a very rocky section. But I, I had seen them scale that wall. And I'm going, OK, they, they can do this. But I, I just could not do it. So, so – Thank goodness for for the assistance of of those those guides to get us to at least where we could have some lunch, and then we needed to continue. Well, what a phenomenal story! You make it back down, you make it back home, and you have done what you set out to do. Phenomenal! If someone still wanted to donate to what you have done, is there a place that they can go? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, uh, a bit.ly address, so b i t dot l y backslash Killy, K-I-L-I, kicking, K-I-C-K-I-N-G, dementia. So Killy kicking dementia. Well, remarkable. Absolutely. Thank you for coming back to share your story. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, when you when you tackle Mount Everest, uh, let us know, <laughs> and uh, and we'll have you back in, and, and we'll do this all over again. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You are welcome, and thank you. Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex, and Wendy Thompson, an Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex board member and principal with Right Brain Teams, as they were raising $1 for every two feet of the ascent. And that is absolutely incredible. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.